0: This is the Media Week Industry Podcast from the people at MediaWeek.com.au.
1: Welcome to a new Media Week Podcast. My name is Crudy Joshi and I'm at the Guardian office in Surrey Hills here with the MD in McLennan. Hi, Ian. Hi there. How are you?
0: I'm very well, thank you.
1: In this podcast, we're going to be talking a bit about the business, the election coverage and generally what place do you think Guardian has in the Australian media landscape so three years ago, when you became the Managing Director of Guardian Australia, what was the first task at hand to ensure you know, that the title has a strong, strong launch in Australia? In May
0: 2013, we chose that timing and that year because there was a double ashes, there was a Lions rugby tour, there was a federal election, and a major news organisation was just about to go behind a paywall. And so we thought that was perfect timing to, to launch in Australia, so we kind of used the natural environment and all of those events to really launch guardian australia and um, and that that proved really successful so there wasn't there wasn't a paid for marketing campaign and, and in fact, we haven't needed to pay for any marketing over the last three years and we we' decided instead to reinvest our marketing budget that was in the plan into more. And greater editorial resources, and because we realized that it was our editorial resources that were generating all of the traffic in a market where there was a real demand for, for the Guardian's independent quality journalism.
1: So exactly when you launched three years ago, there was a federal election. When I'm talking to you now, there's a federal election. Yeah. So they, they,
0: they come around very very often here, don't they? <laughs>
1: it seems like time's gone by.
0: And in between then, we've had sort of five or six uh, prime ministers as well. So it's been absolutely, it's been fantastic for us, uh, for a news organization.
1: <laughs> well, awesome. many people might not agree with you, but as, as <laughs> No,
0: I don't I personally. I, I, it's terrible, but professionally, it's been wonderful.
1: Um, so you had your you like jumped kind of right into the deep end with the um, with like all the news happenings that you've just told me. So what did you learn kind of from the first election coverage that you did locally, and what's new in this one?
0: I mean, I'm not the person to talk to about our editorial uh, methodologies and on our focus. That's really the the, the realm of the editor, and and and, and they're 100 percent sort of in charge. I mean, from from my perspective as a, as a sort of Guardian reader and obviously working um, closely with the editorial team, I think what's given us an advantage is firstly our ownership structure. So we're not owned by the stock market or a media mogul or any commercial interest. We're, we're effectively owned by a not-for-profit trust, uh, the Scott Trust. All of the profits that we do make are, are ploughed back into the, into the business. Um, and that... Independence ensures that our journalism is extremely independent is of the highest quality and what we've found is is increasingly more trusted than other uh, news sources I mean in in the in the UK we are more trusted than the BBC and in Australia only after um, three years with our readers we're, we're more tr- the only media organization more trusted than the Guardian um, with that cohort is is the ABC, and and we're, and we're sort of increasing our trust every day. So our so our independent ownership lead has led to this very independent, objective, high quality journalism, which I think there's a demand for, and we're able to um, explore subjects and and, and uh, hold power to account and cover the election with this real independence um, and the. That relates also to our reporting structure. So the editor here, all of the journalists and all the editors reporting to the editor here. They report into the editor-in-chief, Kath Viner, um, who's the editor-in-chief globally. She reports directly into the Scott Trust. All of the commercial and operational people report into myself. I report into David Pempsel, who's the global CEO, he reports into the Scott Trust. So there's two distinct reporting lines. So the commercial side of the business has absolutely no control over editorial side of the business. So they we they, they can't be influenced um, in any way. So that's that's the first thing. It's really to do with that 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 independence. And the second thing is around economy of scale. So we have 150, 160 or so engineering design development resource based in London, all sort of ex-Silicon Valley type companies who have really revolutionized our digital products and services and they're currently Revolutionising the way that we we approach mobile, we're, we're a mobile first organisation whose CMS that we use, for instance, defaults to a mobile view. For example, as an example of how we do how we are mobile first, we benefit Guardian Australia, as do Guardian US. We basically benefit from that economy of scale. The fact that we've got this huge, highly advanced development resource, continuously developing new digital products and services, continuously in beta, getting feedback, A-B testing, getting getting direct feedback from users, we benefit from all of that without having any of that those development costs on our OPEX locally. And and, and so we've got this fantastic high-quality independent journalism because of our ownership structure, and we've got leading-edge um, digital products which are highly addictive and, and which our, our audience here love. And so that's really given us the advantage, I think, in, in thing, when we are covering things like the um, the election or whatever else the story may be.
1: And so let's go back three years ago when, you know, The Guardian Australia was launching here, actually before it launched. What were your interactions like with, you know, the execs in The Guardian UK? What type of pointers did you get?
0: I had a sort of baptism of fire. So I think a lot of senior executives do. You sort of go into The Guardian and King's Place in London and you pretty much meet with every senior executive in the in the company. And it's, it's, a, it's a large, sort of complex organisation with a fantastic history. Lots of really interesting, innovative projects happening all over the place. And you bet. And you learn what, what they're doing, what's worked, what hasn't worked, et cetera, et cetera. And I really learned a lot about this very, very, this sort of sacred relationship between, between church and state, between editorial and commercial, and the fact that it is a partnership, that they operate hand in hand, but with editorial one inch ahead is the way that they describe it. And, and so really the power sort of lies with them and their, their, their sort of independence is, is sacred. And so I learned all about that. <clears throat> and then I talked to my colleagues in the US. They'd launched a couple of years um, beforehand and really just um, looked at how they had grown, what had been successful, what hadn't, um, which roles they hired and how they approached the market. And we sort of learned from from their experiences and, and, and applied them here. So, so yeah, it was that. It was. It was. It's. It's. It's like it's the best of both worlds, right? So we had um, some startup capital. We had a very agile um, environment, set of people who'd worked in digital businesses and, and, and startups before, and so we had all of the sort of agility and flexibility and ambition as a, as a young digital startup in Australia. But we also had this sort of two hundred years of experience and this massive prestigious. A valuable brand and, and this and this wealth of expertise in in London and, and the US. So, so it really was the sort of com- combining of that great tradition with this this sort of new um, sort of startup mentality.
1: When you came into the Australian market in May 2013, the Guardian already kind of had a. Brand presence here, maybe like not a physical local team, but obviously a huge brand and the prestige that it holds. So, was there a pressure when you were coming into this and you know you're about to launch and the website goes live? Where what what was going through your head?
0: Um, it's a massive honour because I think I think everyone who is serious about news loves the Guardian, and I'd always been a big fan and. So it was a big honor, and honestly, there's lots of sort of pressure on launching something something like that. And you really wanted the The Guardian to work. And in those early days, I had a lot and still do get quite a lot of correspondence from readers saying, "Thank God you're in Australia. Australia really needs the Guardian. There's a real gap for that high quality um, independent journalism that's sort of holding power to account and covering lots of things that are really suffering from from um, not being covered in, the, in in the way they should be. Or in the volume they should be, so it was. It was. It was obviously, you know, a lot of pressure, um, but a great honor, and actually loads of fun as well. I mean, the type of people that the sort of Guardian draws in, they're just a brilliant crowd of people. They're sort of smart and creative and full of energy, and they're good people. You know, they want to do good in the world, and, and it's just so so so. It was quickly any sort of um, you know, sense of pressure or whatever was really just taken over by excitement, and it's kind of just been exciting for the last three years. Um, as we've grown from those initial three or four secondees to um, nearly 80 people now across Australia, three offices, six bureaus, um, you know, we've gone from we did have six or seven hundred thousand unique audience, that's now three million unique audience a month, um, and revenues going from pretty much nothing into double digit um, million dollar figures, and and so it's just been it's been really exciting. I mean, we we've, we've been working flat out. Um, but we get such a positive response, both from the market, who always have said you're just a breath of fresh air, and that they enjoy working with us. And we love these sort of creative partnerships that we have with brands, and and our readers to our editorial, who are just sort of you know are just you know the comments that we get on social media and the emails we get and the comments around articles are just fantastic. They're either really um, uh, robust debate about the subject, or they're, or they're really, you know, really um, lots of gratitude and and, and, and love from our, from our readership here.
1: So when you launched, there was really the Sydney Morning Herald, you know, the major papers um, that were dominating the newspaper landscape, and then around the time that you launched, there was this... All of a sudden, like this intern, uh, like international newspapers just coming in—not newspapers, but news yeah. organizations like Huffington Post, Daily Mail, BuzzFeed—they were all launched around the same time. So obviously, there's a, a competition for readers' eyeballs, but then that also means the competition to grab the advertisers' money. So then, did you have to kind of reassess the market? Say about a year on, we
0: at the time we suspected that display advertising was going to just get increasingly more difficult. As the volume of impressions increased, there'd be downward pressure on, on CPM. Um, so we knew that. We knew that advertising would be increasingly become programmatic and data-driven, and so we needed to build those capabilities quickly. We knew that, or we had a sense that a lot, a lot more advertising money would move into content and, we, and those sort of predictions were, 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 were absolutely correct. We've seen a massive shift in, into content. And so we built, um, rather than building out a massive display sales team, for instance, we, we focused on building a multimedia studio that could create content for, for brands. Um, and we built out that programmatic revenue. And then also non-advertising-based revenues were going to be a vital part of, of the business going forward. So we start. We launched Masterclasses and Guardian Live. We launched our... Um, Premium app subscription model and we are just about to launch membership so we've always had diversification in the plan and we've always known that we were going to have to build our capabilities particularly in data programmatic content uh, and that's and that's what we've done so um, yeah so I think we've, we've kind of we've seen it coming it has come I think it's sort of surprised everyone with how quickly these changes have occurred um, but, but I think we're, we're sort of managing it well at the moment.
1: People are always talking about this constant evolution of how co- uh, content has to be delivered to the audience. Do you find um, the cycle with selling ads or collaborating with um, your partners and your clients, is that constantly evolving with that or is that evolving with the pace that content is?
0: I think so. It is constantly evolving, and I think that's the new mode that we have to get into. Is this agile, ever developing, ever always testing? And it's a kind of like it's an agile. If you use the agile sort of metaphor, if you like, for, for um, development, you know, product development, digital development, if you apply that to a business plan. Um, that's effectively what we've done. So it's, it's this idea that you can no longer say this is the five-year plan, or even this is a three-year plan. This is these are going to be our revenue channels. This is this is our cost base. This is how we're going to this is how we're going to do it. You and the entire organization has moved to really a quarterly planning process with um, objectives and key results for that quarter. And groups huddled, multidisciplinary groups huddled around problems and solving them. And it really fit. And that's what the whole business is doing now. And that's kind of served as well because also our. Partners, what we work with, they want to do that as well. They want to continuously explore new things, try new things out, um, analyze the data. Was that successful doing it? Doing it that way? Can we can we tweak something? Can we do it differently? And so, really, what we what we try and do is get our partners sort of on board with us, really, and go through that journey. Is is you know that iterative process of trying to communicate whatever a brand wants to communicate with our particular audience, and we try we try. We learn from how our editorial teams communicate with that audience on a 24-7 basis, and we use the same techniques and technologies, and we help brands um, communicate to them in a really transparent way, but in in a sort of exciting, innovative
1: way. You've taken up two floors on 19 Foster Street to cater for your operations. Um, When you were giving me a tour a little before this chat, you pointed out that the G-Lab team, which is essentially your creative marketing team, and your journalists... Who are the creative thinkers of the indus- uh, of the organisation? They sit separately. This I found different because usually organisations are going on about using their creative minds and you know all the creative assets that they have in order to leverage the content marketing and come up with new ideas. So, what was the approach behind this?
0: So, we because of our ownership structure, because I think our USP is really that is we, we are really the only major. Properly, independently owned media organization that doesn't have shareholders or 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 media mogul um, or other commercial influence or political influence telling us you know who to hire, what to write, what not to write, etc. That status is absolutely sacred, and we cannot impinge upon that editorial integrity. It's absolutely we just can't do it. It's the it's our it's our absolute, the core of, of, of our value. And so we take the separation of church and state extremely seriously. And so we decided that our editorial teams would only work on stuff that is 100% editorially independent. And there is no argument and no gray areas otherwise. So you, 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 you know, I think a lot of people have got into this process as well. You know, there can be a little bit of, brand involvement or, or political involvement, or there can be you know varying degrees of involvement. And then it becomes very confusing to the reader about well, how you know how involved have the brand been? Is that what the editorial really think? Or is it really independent or, or is there an agenda here? And so just to get rid of that, we said, let's just have it very black and white. Editorial on one side, commercial on the other side, both have got brilliant technologies and techniques, both have got brilliant creative people. One works with in, entirely with 100 percent editorial independence and the other one works with brands in creative ways and which is in a, in a way which is transparent to the user and that became very very clear to us and we i'm um, sort of in in conversation with our readers that's what they wanted as well and so we've come to a sort of happy place with clear labeling and a sort of good structure to, 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 to deliver that we are editorials brands can fund editorial series but We're very clear from the outset that they that, that, that the editorial are in control and they make hundred percent of the decisions there but it but quite often brands want to be associated with um, a project that it's sort of editorial are, are doing or, or a coverage of you know an international sporting event or whatever it might be. Those traditional sponsorship relationships still still take place, but it's hundred percent editorial control.
1: throughout this conversation, you've been talking about the distinction between church and state quite a lot. You have a different streamline to report to the, you know, your heads, and the editorial has its own streamline that they go through. So, how? What are your inter- interactions like with the editor of the Guardian?
0: So, it has to be a really, really close partnership. And I think you can see that in in, in London with um, David Pemsel and Catherine Viner. Um, you can see it in the US with amon Store and uh, Lee Glendinning, and similarly. Myself and Emily Wilson, and as of July, myself and Lenore Taylor will have that sort of close partnership. And it's really important that you have this candid, transparent, close partnership, so you can work through all of the issues, you can make um, decisions together, and 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 that you you are a partnership. And as I said, you know, operating hand in hand, but because of our ownership structure, editorial always a sort of inch ahead. They have to. It's their job to to maintain that sort of wonderful. Independence and integrity that we, we're renowned for, and I think which which will separate in a world of a myriad of choices of where to get your news from, that is the one thing that's going to separate us. And so that's so, so we so we hold it, you know, in in that high regard. Um, so it means a lot of communication. So it means you know weekly meetings. It means complete transparency over our strategy and of our funding and of our of our business plan. Um. It means that <clears throat> I, I don't get involved in editorial decisions. You know I just have no say whatsoever. You know um, a lot of the time that I, you know I don't have the in, information. That's for my own protection and my staff's own protection. Um, similarly, they 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 let us get on with the with the with the business of making money. You know from from our news product and and uh, and um, yeah, I think it's this, it's this really wonderfully symbiotic relationship. It's not easy. It's one that you have to work on on a daily basis, I think, to get it right. And I, and I think it's about being yeah, transparent and professional. And also, having this, basically, and I think this is shared throughout, having the same common goal. Because ultimately, we haven't got any shareholders that I've got to, on the commercial side, satisfy. I mean, we're all, we're all in this for the exactly the same reason, which is to continue the Guardian's tradition of liberal journalism in perpetuity. Free of any commercial or political interference. That's why we all work for the Guardian. It's not to make shareholders rich.
1: So, what are the conversations that go on between you, you and the editor, in those weekly meetings that you've talked about?
0: That oh, they're confidential. I can't possibly share the, share what goes on in those meetings. No, we have. Um, we discuss the business plan, how we're tracking. We discuss our strategy. We discuss. Um, uh, Operational stuff, you know, build, it's quite boring actually, you know, buildings and, you know, bills and um, uh, all kinds of things. Really, we talk about how are, is, everyone, is everyone operating according to the policies and the rules in terms of, you know, a sponsored content and, and our sort of g-labs. Are we all happy with that way that's going? Um, we talk about members, we've been talking about membership a lot, we've been talking about video a lot. Uh, what we can do, you know, to to increase our video views and do more video content, make it more discoverable. Um, we talk about I, I sort of keep them up to date with the effect of Google and Facebook in the advertising market. The effect we talk about ad blocking and how we and how we deal with that. So 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 there's continuous, you know, as as you as you know, there's a continuous um, array of subjects in the, in the sort of news industry that we need that we need to discuss.
1: Earlier in the year, Lenore Taylor was announced as your third editor for Guardian Australia. Did you have any say in that process? No,
0: none whatsoever.
1: <laughs>
0: so uh, I, I, I think uh, I think Kath and the editorial side has said, you know, I think I think I looked at some, uh, I knew some of the candidates, and they were all brilliant, and uh, and I'd be happy to with it with, with any of them. So so, and I think, but no, it's it's it, that's that's an editorial decision. I, d- I I didn't have any say in that. So and that's, she- and that's the way it should be. That's not that's not my. Decision.
1: So Lenore Taylor was announced the editor, and you're like, oh, that's news to me. Hello.
0: I may have known a couple of seconds before it was announced.
1: <laughs> so you were talking about premium content a little bit before. A lot of businesses are adapting, like News Corp, for example. It's um, you know, put up a paywall and is thinking about putting about fifty percent of its content behind paywall. Is there any plans like that for you? Um, you know, to put in put out premium content from a business point of view?
0: Not at the moment. So we n- never say never. We're open to all options. It might be in the future, you know, we decide to do something like that. It's necessary to do something like that. But keeping our content free, continuing with our open journalism policy, where it's access to all, it's highly distributed across social media, etc., has been a tremendous success. It's been a massive success. I mean, look how The Guardian has gone from sixth or most popular newspaper in, in, in Britain... To the second largest quality newspaper site in the world. And that's through not going behind a paywall right. And so and so it's probably about to a certain extent that has been that has been the right decision and it's been necessary. And and we we've massive you know, Guardian Australia I don't think would exist without that strategy. We are continuously looking at different ways in which we can fund our journalism, fund what we do. And some of those ways will be non-advertising-based. We're not convinced that advertising can exclusively fund a a global news organization such as ours. And so we have already instigated a number of different non-advertising-based revenue streams, e-commerce, events and courses, uh, premium subscription. And the latest um, one of those is, is it will be membership. So membership... Is really fundamentally about our readers supporting our independent journalism and being more engaged and more involved, and that's pretty much the driving force behind it. The the, the sort of the details of of what will be provide what membership will entail and what we will provide in return for uh, membership are all being ironed out at the moment. So in, in one of those huddles, multidisciplinary huddles across the across the globe, which I which I mentioned. So it's really been worked out in conjunction with commercial and editorial and with our readers and and no doubt we will try try things out and we'll iterate over time until we get the model right, and that's pretty much how how we operate these days.
1: At the end of last year, the Australian reported that Guardian Australia has two years to prove itself commercially viable before a multi-million dollar loan is called in. How do you react to such reporting and how much of a truth is there to this report?
0: Yeah, so that's complete nonsense. I think um, it's just, that's just made up, basically. So, so we have had some, uh, we had investment capital. We have a five-year plan. We have exceeded our five-year plan. We're currently, uh, initially, we're now on track. And we, ha- we can see that the plan is to be a sustainable business within that term. We're, we're still on track to do that. We'll continue to do it. Some There are some commentators that have other agendas that will occasionally say things like that for their own purposes, whether it's to bolster share price or whatever. I don't want to speculate. But... Um, but it's, there's no basis in truth. So, so we, we've always kind of said we've got a five-year plan. We've got a fixed amount of funding. We want our ambition is to be a sustainable business. We've delivered every single year on the last three years. Our, our, our plan continues to be on track, and so we just have to get on, keep on, and you know, do our job and keep on delivering, um, and ignore sort of nonsense. Basically,
1: you talked about a five-year plan. A statement from you in the same article talked about a five-year plan. What is this five-year plan?
0: So it's just a five-year business plan. When we when we started off, and it was basically let, we've got enough capital to develop, grow a, a digital news organisation in Australia with it that that is sustainable, that funds itself, is, is self-generating within 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 a five-year period, and 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 that's and that's still the plan. We're three years into that, and it's and it's and it's going it's going better than we expected, and we and we and our ambitions remain the same, basically. I mean, we reserve the right to change it. I mean, we could change the plan. I mean, that's you know, that's the great thing about not having shareholders to answer to. We could make it a ten-year plan, you know, but we're not. We're sticking to the original plan. It's just slight, there's slightly more people and higher revenues, uh, and ultimately uh, probably probably more profits that we can plow back into the business at, at the end of, the, of that term. But other than that, the plan remains the same: is to be sustainable within five years.
1: Being a global brand that you are, you have a prolific presence in the US and obviously the UK. What happens in those businesses affect your business here in Australia as well and what you do here affects their reputation over there. So in May 2016, there was an incident about a reporter in Guardian US fabricating interviews and you know, making up quotes in an article, but then you've also had wonderful work coming out of Guardian Australia with the PANPA paper leaks. Um, So how do these incidents affect um, the reputation in the market?
0: I'm not familiar with the the incident that you referred to, so I won't comment on that. Um, We tend to share... Best practice and technology, and so and so we develop best practice and we develop technologies and we share them between um, different regions. I mean that's how, how that's how the relationship happens. But there's there's a fair bit of autonomy within each of the regions. We we have a shared platform, shared set of digital products, um, same policies, etc. shared strategy, and then how we execute that and how we operate is is sort of up to the local editor and, and, and CEO. Um, Everything that we produce is all goes into the same sort of content API. And, then, and, so, and that's one of our strengths is that we, we're you know, probably the strongest news organization in Australia with, with, for, for international coverage. That's because of that relationship. And similarly, the U.S. edition benefits from our European and Australian Asian coverage and, 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 and et cetera. So, so we, all, we all benefit from that. And then we're continuously um, exchanging information and coordinating our activities on the commercial side of the business as well. There's lots that you can learn about um, uh, the market and the way that it's moving from what's happening in the U.S. right now and what's happening in in the U.K., what's happening here. So we got got a real um, heads-up on the whole issue around viewability, for instance. So so there's greater demand for transparency and and around advertising viewability. That was happening in, in the U.S. probably 18 months, two years before it was here. And so we were able to develop the site and uh, improve the site so that we had the most viewable ads against all of our our, our 10 competitors in the news category in this market, um, months and even even years ahead of of they ahead of, um, before it even became a sort of subject, topic of debate here.
1: In January 2016, Guardian News and Media cut costs by about, or was aiming to cut costs by about 20%, so that's about 50 million pounds. Um, so how does this impact local operations
0: so it doesn't affect local operations at all so we're, we're on a separate PL with separate funding and the, the UK are have still got a print um, business they've still got a, a daily paper and so they have over the last five you know five or ten years as all print organisations have been going through a transition period from print to digital and given Recent sort of acceleration of the decline in, in print revenues, advertising revenues, and, and circulation, and also compounded by a sort of decline in digital display um, growth, then, though that transition has had to be accelerated, and, and hence you get the, the sort of cost cutting exercise in, in just in the UK. Mm. So that, that's where that's
1: in that article, it was said changes such as growth of mobile, which is proving harder to monetize on than print, has increased the pace of change since last summer. So obviously they're talking about the seasons, they're not here. Mm. So it, it, th- I found that part to be very interesting, that it's proving harder to, be moneti- uh, to monetize on mobile. Mm. Do you find that the same here or is there different opportunities?
0: Well, the, the thing about mobile is in market... Mobile advertising has a lower CPM, and so that's the that's the strategic challenge and that's that pressure. However, mobile does provide better, really excellent data, and so and so if you manage to capture that effectively, you can mitigate the lower CPM that the market is placing on that advertising inventory. Um, and then also, mobile has a, has um, a load of other features that can be um, Used in in the commercial model, so geolocation, for instance, um, the use of a mobile device in in VR, and we we're developing sort of editorial stories using that technology. I'm sure we'll start to use brand, um, do brand stories using that technology. Um, the the benefit of an app based um, relationship with a user, for example, so mobile has all of these. Um, they're more engaged, they come back more regularly, we have more information about them. It can be a more personalized experience. So there's a whole load of advantages to mobile. And, and our hope is that we can use all those advantages to mitigate what, what the market is, is, is setting as a sort of uh, advertising CPM on mobile devices.
1: As the managing director of Guardian um, Australia, Ian, what do your days look like?
0: So I probably work on a weekly schedule, so Monday morning is my senior management team get together, we are tracking our objectives and our key results for that particular quarter, how we're, how we're moving along, sort of discussing any, any issues. Um, and then it's every day, it's it's uh, considering what's happening, keeping abreast of what's happening on the editorial side of the business um, and what they're developing and meeting with the editor. Um, and various um, vertical editors, so sports and culture and whatever, and finding out what their plans are, getting as much information from them about their plans and ambitions and ideas. And then um, working with my senior management team and their various teams, uh, making sure that we're doing the best we possibly can in advertising, in programmatic, around our ad operations and our use of data, our multimedia studio team, are we managing those relationships effectively? Um, are we being innovative um, checking that've everyone 's got the sort of resources that they need, um, and then having to sort of make decisions quickly and adapt as you know the market changes in such a dynamic fashion that you 're really having to make you know strategic decisions you know week to week about how do, how do we focus our resources where do we focus them where where do we see the opportunities? where do we see the threats so it's, so i think it 's continuously it 's it's, uh, yeah it's a con- it's a continuous process of evolution and having to make sort of decisions continuously along the way about how we're going to evolve
1: so what time do you get in and what time are you out of the office i'm
0: trying to work office hours i've been i've been told by my colleagues and and my uh, coach and and my boss that i should probably work uh, i should stop working at, in for some hours during the day you know so so i get up at um i go for a run at 6 and i then spend an hour getting into work. I spend an hour doing emails and stuff before the day probably starts, and then I work all day. I normally have a lunch just today with with a client or a potential business partner or whatever. Uh, I normally have a video conference at the end of the day with London um, on on some of the days of the week. So that's um, uh, occasionally we'll have a global call, not not every every week, but some weeks we'll we'll try and coordinate. New York, London, and Sydney, which is, I always seem to get the bum deal out of that and have the, you know, the 11 o'clock slot, um, and then I go home, and I try and spend as much time with my, my, my kids and my wife and my dog before bed, and then it all starts again.
1: How often are you travelling back in between London and Sydney?
0: I go back to London about three times a year at the moment for uh, Can Lions, which is a, a Guardian-owned event, and where we meet a lot of our... Clients and, we, and, and clients and a lot of global clients a lot of global colleagues. So it's a great meeting place. I tend to work in the London office um, for the week after that and have a catch up with everyone face to face and then once or twice a year I'll go to the commercial conference or the strategy away day back in, back in London. So I, I have family back there as well. So, it's, so, it's, I'm happy to go
1: back. so the jet lag is not too bad. Ian, thank you so much for your no, time. It was, it was nice lovely. Chatting. I enjoyed it. It was lovely talking to you too, likewise. You were listening to Media Week Podcast. Please go check us out on mediaweek.com.au and follow us on Twitter at Media Week AUS.